scripture passage for this morning's sermon is 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let's pray. Our Father, as Sarah sang that last song, I saw such a powerful vision in my spirit. It's just overwhelmingly beautiful to me, Father. I saw you high and lifted up, Father. I saw the train of your robe filling the temple, just glowing bright with your glory. I saw you on top of a staircase so tall no one could count the steps, exalted on the top of the universe, the the top of everything, high and above and over everyone and everything. I saw your arms spread wide, open, ready to receive, ready to dispense mercy and justice, receiving praise from those who had been redeemed through the blood of the Lamb. I saw so many thousands gathered around your throne and worshiping and worshiping and worshiping you in your face, glowing brightly with joy and glory. Oh, what a beautiful thing, Father. Who could imagine that a God like you, so holy and just and mighty and true, that you would bring sinners like us so close to you, Father. God, you know I didn't plan any of this and so I can say with all the authenticity of my heart that you blow my mind, Lord. You take my breath away. I just can't even conceive your love, Father. So great, so true, so strong, so never-ending. It is an everlasting love. And it is our great hope. Father, this morning you know that we're going to talk about the spiritual battle that's raging all around us even now. And yet our hope is in you. Our hope is this, Christ in us, the hope of glory. He who has redeemed us by the blood of the Lamb will keep us all the way to the end. And that's our hope, God. You will receive us into your eternal home and you will make of this church and make of each of us as individuals whatever you will because you are the one that's on the throne. What Pat's saying as a prelude this morning is absolutely true. This is all about you, Father. This is not about me or about anyone else. It's not about us as a body. This is all about you. And so we 
rise to praise Your name. Father, we bow to praise Your name. We sing in praise. We remain silent in reverence. We give ourselves to You, Father. And I pray that now that You would speak by Your Word, O God, guide us in the way that we should go to the glory of Your great name alone. Please, Father, chase the devils away. I am just certain in my times of prayer over the last couple of days that there are demonic spirits attempting to deceive Your people. Whoever will hear this message today, somebody needs to hear this message. And I pray in Jesus' name and by the the grace and power of His strong right arm that He would chase the demons away. I pray that You would have Your way in our lives, Father, just like the song that we sing. Let Your kingdom come and let Your will be done in our homes, in this church, in this city, and in this world, even as it is in heaven. Father, we just want to see the kingdom of God break in and to see the kingdom of Satan totally defeated. And so we trust in You for that now, Father, and we give You our thanks and praise. In Jesus' great name, Amen. The Church of Christ which is not just a, an organization, but we are in fact the temple of God and the body of Christ and the very bride of Jesus. Have you ever really let that sink in? That Jesus Christ looks at a little body like this and what He thinks is, my wife, this is my wife, this is my bride. We're not just a Lions Club or a YMCA or something like that. We are the people of God redeemed by Jesus Christ. Amen? Oh, how I pray that He would help us to let that sink in. Just how precious we are to Him and how much He has done for us on the cross. This bride has existed for little less than 2,000 years now. And from the very beginning, she has been infiltrated and influenced by false teachers. Jesus Christ is the singular truth, the singular way, the singular life, right? He said this in John 14, 6. There is no other way to God except through Jesus Christ. You can't do a go-around. There's no other way. I once heard Mother Teresa say that her passion was not to make Hindus into Christians, but to make them better Hindus, and to make Muslims better Muslims. And my heart just ripped apart when I heard her say that, because you can't get to Christ through the Hindu religion. You can't get to Christ through Buddha, who, to God through Buddha, who doesn't even believe that God existed. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And so Satan's singular aim in this world is to deceive as many of us as he can away from Jesus Christ. Because in doing that, he deceives us away from eternal life. And so, in fact, we are in the midst of a great spiritual battle, even right this moment, whether or not we have the eyes to see it. I've been thinking about this a lot this week, and I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the spiritual battle is more prevalent and more intense right now than it's ever been in human history. You hear people say things like that a lot, and preachers tend to get away with saying things like that without being checked. But I really pushed myself this week to think about that, and I do think it's true for a few reasons. First of all, there's more people on this planet right now than there's ever been in history, right? There's over there's about six and a half billion of us now on the planet. And so just in terms of sheer numbers, you'd have to conclude there's more false teachers around us than ever before. Secondly, travel is easier now than it's ever been in human history. You know, we complain about long flights to the other side of the world, but the truth is, it's unbelievable that we can get in this hollow metal tube with wings on it and be on the other side of the earth in less than 24 hours. That's amazing. And what that has 
created is a situation where ideas around the world have interacted and interplayed with each other as never before in human history. And this great global interaction has caused a lot of deceitful, destructive teachings to rise up even inside the church. You remember that John is concerned with false teaching, but specifically what he's concerned with is those who claim to be believers and are not. John is specifically writing about wolves in sheep's clothing. He's not writing about people from other religions around the world. And so those are the ones I particularly have in mind. I know of some people... In fact, I know some of them personally who have flown around the world, been exposed to ideas, and essentially walked away from Christ and become universalists. And this is happening on a a scale that I don't think has ever happened in human history, partially because of the ease of travel and exposure to other peoples around the world. Third, and I think probably most important, is the ease and the speed of communication in our world. Even ten years ago, what I'm about to say wasn't possible. But right now, in today's world, a, a teacher, true or false, could have their teachings spread all over this planet in a matter of minutes, right? From the biggest cities to the smallest, most remote villages, your idea could be around the world in a matter of minutes. I remember when I went to India a few months ago and I was sitting there working on my book and I'm writing and writing for hours and hours and I didn't want to lose all that work and so every once in a while I would do my best. I'd pray my way through the email system there which is not very trustworthy but it's there and I would email that thing to myself at other accounts so that if I lost my you know, text here I would have it somewhere else. And I remember one morning sending it off and the email went through and then I looked into the sky and I just went, oh, how did that happen? I mean, I just sent an entire book across the earth in minutes, maybe less than minutes, maybe seconds, and there's no wires or anything. It just blew my mind to sit there and think about that. That's really weird, isn't it? It's really weird. That's all, that's not all evil in itself, but one thing that that has created is a situation where teaching both true and false can spread around this earth like never before. And so we have more teachers trying to influence more people with access to those people than ever before in history. And I think, therefore, it is not an exaggeration to say that the spiritual battle for truth is heavier and more prevalent right now than ever before in human history. It's literally raging all around us. The question is, do we have eyes to see? And are we paying attention to biblical wisdom about how to respond to what's coming at us? This week, I spent just about 30 minutes looking at some some fairly popular websites of some prominent ministries around the country, mostly radio and television ministries. And what I wanted to do was just make a quick list, as quick as I could, of a whole string of names and mix them all up, just sort of write them down as they came to me and, and, and just read them out to you as a small sampling of the teachers who are trying to influence us today. So here's 35 names that have fairly prevalent ministries in our day. Some of the names you might know, some you won't know. Some of these are good teachers. Some of these, in my opinion, are heretics. Bart Ehrman, John MacArthur, Doug Paget, Greg Boyd, R.C. Sproul, James McDonald, Kenneth Copeland, Jack Hayford, Chip Ingram, Pat Robertson, John Eldridge, Joel Osteen, Alistair Begg, Mac Hammond, Chuck Swindoll, Joyce Meyer, Don Cousins, John Piper, David Wells, Brian McLaren, John Hagee, Rick Warren, T.D. Jakes, C.J. Mahaney, Les Feldick, Bill Hybels, Tim LaHaye, David Jeremiah, Tim Keller, Greg Laurie, Paul and Jen Crouch, Ravi Zacharias, James Dobson, 
Benny Hinn, Lee Strobel, 35 names. And I could go on and on and on and on and on. And these are people who have prevalent ministries. These are people who have worldwide media ministries. These are people who are regularly, daily, trying to influence the body of Christ both here and around the world. And it's just a drop in the bucket. Just a drop in the bucket. It took me less than 30 minutes, actually, to compile that list in about twice as much. And just think about if you seriously took a look at all the teachers who are significantly trying to influence the body of Christ around the world today, and then add to them the millions upon millions of local pastors like me and Kevin and Mike who are just trying to serve the people of God in local areas, and you will begin to see that the the scope of this issue is just massive. Beloved, we are literally surrounded by teachers who both for good and evil are trying to influence us about the person of Jesus Christ. And so a string of questions came to my mind, and I'll just ask them to you now. Who then is the real Jesus Christ, and how do we know? How do we know who He really is? How do we know who is truly representing Jesus as He is, and who is obscuring Jesus either for either on purpose or not on purpose, but one way or another, uh, presenting to us a false view of Jesus Christ? How are we to test these people? How are we to know the difference between the spirit of truth and the spirit of error? Are we paying attention? Are we actively engaging in the teaching that's coming into our lives? Or are we, like many consumers do in the world, just sort of passively receiving whatever is given to us? Just passively accepting what anybody who opens a Bible says about Jesus Christ. Well, these are the things we're going to talk about today because they're the things that John raises. And I've been saying to you for weeks that John wrote his letter against false teachers who were trying to influence the churches that he loved very much. John was at some level a pastor of the people that he's writing to. He knew these people. He loved these people. And he's writing to them to chase the wolves away is what he's doing. And as we saw in the first chapter, the reason he's doing that is because he wants them and us to maintain fellowship with God that we might have a fullness of joy. He knows that if we follow false teachers, it is eternal destruction for us. He knows that. And so he's fighting for our joy. He's fighting for our fellowship with God by getting us to think seriously and clearly about false teachers. And so what I want to do this morning is simply walk right through his words. And then we'll come back to talk a little bit about how to test the spirits. I won't say a ton about that, but at least want to lay out a, a, a brief path. And along the way, I think what we're going to see is that John's main punch today is to say to us, don't just trust your teachers, but test, test, test them. Don't just trust, but test, test, test. That's really what John is trying to get us to say today, to see today. He's trying to woo us away from being passive Christians into being actively engaged receivers of truth about Jesus Christ. So let's look again just at verse 1. We'll probably spend half of our time just in this verse. John said, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. First thing I want to point out is the very first word there. You notice he uses that word, beloved, again. I, I want to keep pointing this out every time we see it in First John, because the, the way that he thinks about these people should color the way we hear the tone of what John says in his letter. John speaks some very heavy things in this letter, doesn't he? I mean, if we take seriously what we've read so far, and continue to take him seriously as we move along, we, we're going to see that he walks really softly in some ways. He's a loving, kind person, but he carries a very big stick. 
John knows how to hit us with the truth. In fact, I remember a few of you coming up to me before the First John series and saying, it kind of, I, you kind of had the look in your face like you're about to take a, a wild roller coaster ride. It's like, man, I'm not sure I want to do this. I know it's going to be good, but it's going to hurt because John speaks the truth. He is not afraid to speak the truth. But it's so important that we see that his heart and his tone toward his readers is very affectionate. He loves these people. You don't use the word beloved in the Greek language unless you truly love the people you're talking to. In fact, that's true in English as well. You would never say, my beloved, unless you really cared about that person. And so again, I just want to point out his pastoral heart for these people. He loves them very much. And in the context of his loving affirmation, he instructs them not to just believe every spirit, but to test everyone that comes along. I find it interesting that he uses the word spirits here to talk about teachers. He doesn't use the word teachers. But then in the following verses, he very clearly connects the word spirit to the actual teachers that he has in mind. And so we have to decide, what does John mean by spirit here? And it it seems to me there are two options. He either means the, the spirit of the teacher, him or herself, or he means the spirits that are behind the teacher, ultimately influencing that person to say what they're saying. So he's either calling us to discern the spirit of the teacher, or he's calling us to discern the the spiritual forces behind the teacher. I thought about this quite a lot this week, and I've come to think that the second option is actually what John has in his mind for two reasons. Number one, if you look there at the next verse real quick, you'll see that John very clearly says that when a true teacher teaches truth, the main thing that is revealed in that moment is the Spirit of God. Not the Spirit of the teacher, but the Spirit of God. So what true teaching does is it unmasks the beauty of this God that we worship. And so it follows then, in my mind, that if that's what John's talking about for true teachers, then when he thinks about false teachers, he also thinks that when they teach false things, evil spirits are unmasked through them. It's not necessarily to say that they are an evil spirit, but it is to say that demonic evil spirits are influencing their their lives and their teaching, and so ultimately it's an, a deceiving spiritual being that is that is trying to persuade us away from God. The second reason I think that this is what John has in mind is just that it, when I think about the Bible at large, I, my mind immediately goes to first or, or Ephesians chapter six verse twelve, which we know well that our battle is not against flesh and blood, right? But our battle is against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Behind every earthly teaching and teacher and church and ministry and all of that are heavenly forces that are battling it out over the truth about Jesus Christ. And so whenever a teacher teaches, either for good or evil, the ultimate thing that is revealed there is the spirit that's behind them. So John is calling us to be discerning people about the spiritual forces behind the teachers that are teaching us. Obviously, we have to think about the teachers themselves, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But I think it's really important for us to understand that we're not trying to discern like whether we like a particular teacher or not, whether his or her personality kind of meshes with ours or whatever. That's not the point of the discernment. The discernment is, what is the spirit that's ultimately motivating this person? Is this person and his or her teaching emanating from God or emanating from the devil? I think it's crucial that we keep that target in mind, otherwise we can get off in a, in a number of ways. We're trying to discern the spiritual forces behind teaching is what we're really trying to do. This is why then John instructs his, 
his beloved not to just accept everything that they hear, but to test it. The word here for don't believe everything, the word for believe there literally means faith. We in English don't have a verbal form of the word faith. We can't say that we faith into Jesus But that's how they talk in the Greek language. When they say believe in Jesus in Greek, it literally says faith into Jesus. And so what John literally writes here in Greek is do not faith into every teacher that comes to teach you. Don't do that. Don't automatically trust everyone who opens their Bible before you and claims to teach you about Christ. There are some people who preach from the Bible, but don't preach biblically. They, they use the words, but they one way or another obscure the words. So just because a person opens their Bible, don't just automatically say, well, there's a biblical teacher. That's not true. It's not true. It takes time and effort, growth, maturity to be able to discern who's handling the Bible well and not. That's a process that we'll talk about. But I think the main thing we have to get in our minds is don't just automatically trust someone because they open their Bible. I don't think John wants us to have in us a critical, paranoid, judgmental, nitpicking kind of a spirit, you know. I don't think he's asking us to, 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 to zealously find faults in everybody's teaching. I, I really don't think that's the spirit he wants of us. He's just saying, don't be naive. Don't let your, your love in Jesus Christ blind your eyes to the fact that the person before you might be trying to deceive you right now. Don't just believe, but test, test, test. The word for test that John uses here means to discern the genuineness of a thing by examination and usage. As I was praying about this this morning, I got in my mind, I don't know, somewhere I saw a commercial or something about a car manufacturer who had some kind of machine where they just opened up the car door. You ever seen something like that? They just open it and close it, open it and close it, open it and close it, open it and close it to see what, you know, maybe we can do it 25,000 times, maybe 50,000. How long will it take before this thing breaks, you know? That's the picture to have in your mind here. John is saying put somebody through a process. He is not saying, get a gut reaction about somebody and reject them. Our gut reactions are important, especially the ladies among us. I've said many times that women's intuition plus the Holy Spirit equals the gift of discernment. My wife has it in spades. There's been many times when Kim has said to me, something does not feel right to me here. And I say, well, help me understand. And she's like, I can't, I can't, I don't know, I can't put it in words, but something doesn't feel right. And in the end, she turned out to be right many, many times. And so, even if you can't articulate, I think you should pay attention to that initial gut check. There's something that's real there. But what I'm saying is that John has something more in mind than that. Even though my wife's gut is good, and and some of you have really good instincts well uh, in that way as well, sometimes it fails you, right? Not, Not every time is your gut instinct right about a person. So, John is saying, test them. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Put them through a process And let's discern their genuineness together. And as we do that, another important thing to keep in mind is John is saying that the goal of our discernment is to see, does this person come from God or not? That's the goal. We're not just trying to scrutinize every bit of their teaching to see if they teach anything that's a little bit off. And then if they're a little bit off here, we just reject them. That's not the picture. The thing that we're trying to discern here is, does this person come from God? You see, a true teacher will actually teach things that aren't true. And here's the reason. No teacher is totally perfected in Christ. I I remember talking to John Piper once and he said, Man, I just listened to a sermon of mine from 20 years ago. I really wish I wouldn't have said that. 
not the whole sermon, but there was a part of the sermon. He said, I don't believe that anymore. I don't think that's true anymore. He's not a false teacher. He was a man growing in Christ who said something that probably wasn't totally accurate. And every single teacher who does come from God will say things that aren't totally accurate because they're not perfected in Christ. But that doesn't mean they're not from God. I think with a person like that, where you can begin telling they're not from God, is when you bring it to their attention, they, they, they stiff arm you. They don't want to hear it. They will not receive loving correction from you. I don't think any teacher should receive unloving, demonic kind of correction. I've had that happen to me just once or twice in my ministry. But hundreds of times, I've had people come to me with a healthy, Christ-honoring, God-exalting love and say, Pastor, I don't think you are just right about that. And I have received that when I've thought it through and come to agree with them. I am willing to correct myself publicly because my commitment is not to my ego or to being right. My commitment is to the truth of the Word of God. Every true teacher has that kind of spirit about them. They might be a little off here or there, but they're willing to be corrected because truth is their passion. Not being right about everything. I think biblically, give you a couple of biblical examples so you don't get too nervous about any of that. Apollos, in uh, Acts chapter 18. He's teaching in the city of Ephesus and he's passionate about Christ. So he's preaching the gospel to just completely pagan lost people and with some success. And while he's teaching one day, this couple comes from Rome. They were Jews who had been expelled from Rome. And then there they found themselves in Ephesus for some reason or other. Priscilla and Aquila are their names. You, you know them. They're listening to Apollos teach and they're like, this, this, this guy's got something, but he's not quite right. Something's not quite full about his teaching. And so what did they do? They did not just uh, unlovingly criticize him. They brought him aside and, and, and relationally said to him, Apollos, we need to teach you the way of God more fully, is how Luke writes it in, in Acts 18. And Paulus's reaction, Apollos' reaction was not to reject their correction, but he accepted it. He said, you're right, you're right. And he clung to truth about Jesus Christ. Even though he, he wasn't teaching it quite fully over here, he clung to it when it was revealed to him because he was truly of God. And then the effect of that is just so mind-blowing to me and, and evokes worship in me because what happened next is that these three people became essentially a church planting team and began preaching the gospel in all of the cities of Ephesus so that by the time Paul showed up in this pagan city, there was already a little church there. Paul spent three years of his life in that city, longer than he ever spent anywhere else, mainly because of the work of Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. Because here was a true teacher from God who was a little bit off, but responded well to correction. And then boom, a prosperous ministry came out of it that has lasted to this day. I mean, we spent two and a half years reading a letter to the Ephesians that came out of that ministry. You think about that. Just amazing. I think of Paul when he went to the city of Berea, which is just over the pond from, uh, from Ephesus, just about straight north of Athens a couple of hours. And Paul went there and went to the synagogue as what was his custom, and he taught them about Jesus, but they didn't just accept his teaching. Remember? Remember what they did? They took the Bible and they searched the Bible day in and day out, which says to me, this was not a quick process. They actually spent a lot of time pursuing the things that Paul was teaching to them. They didn't just swallow them. And what was Paul's reaction? His reaction was to rejoice in what they were doing. A true teacher longs to be tested. 
Because first of all, they know that they're coming from God. And second of all, they know that truth is truth. And if you test the genuineness of truth, you know, open it, close it, open it, close it, open it, close it. It's going to work forever. Truth will never fail. And so when a true teacher is tested, they rejoice. And I'm, all I'm saying is, I think, even though a true teacher might not exactly teach everything just right, pay attention to the, how they react when they are lovingly corrected, because that will tell you much about, do they come from God or do they not come from God? Beautiful thing. To me, a very focusing thing. Because it's so easy when you get to talking about teaching, to get focused on all the nitpicking details. And we do need to pay attention to the details of teaching, but mainly what we're trying to discern is the spirit behind a person. Are they from God? Now, I am going to talk a little bit later about how to test a teacher just a little bit, but for right now I want to point out that this command, don't just trust, but test, 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 this command is being issued to the church as a body and not just to individual believers. And so the point that I'm making there is that not every single one of us has to go get advanced degrees in theology to be able to discern the teaching of every teacher in the world, but together as a body we discern whether X, Y, or Z teacher is from God. I don't want to mention names because I'm afraid I'm going to leave somebody crucial out here, and I don't want to do that. But there are a number of people in this church right now who are who excel at the ability to discern true and false teaching. They really excel. I'm very impressed. In fact, many times it's helped me personally as I've been trying to discern the truth about a particular teacher. And so I think since we are a body, the picture that John has in his mind is that we lean on each other. Some of us are strong in one area. Some of us are strong in another. And there are people in this church right now who have a massive gift of discernment. They really do. And so we should lean on each other. Every believer has to take personal responsibility, right, for the, for the teaching that's coming toward them. Each of us has to be alert and aware and thinking about the teachings that are trying to influence us. But at the end of the day, it's okay for us to lean on one another. God designed it that way. And so the way I've always done this in my walk with Christ is I build trust with teachers that are really good, solid biblical teachers. And then I lean on them to help me discern other teachers that I'm not quite so sure about. And we can do that right here in this church. This is a body command, not just an individual command. And so let's think together in sort of body terms about it. One more point from this verse, just from the very end. You notice that John says that many, many false prophets have gone out into the world. That was almost 2,000 years ago. And so I think the truth is today is that even more have gone out into the world, which is why I wanted to list 35 names to you earlier. Because there is a massive mix of true and false teachers among us, and behind them are evil spirits trying to deceive us away from Christ. And so again, we just can't be passive Christians. We have to act actively as a body learn to discern the spirits that are trying to influence us. Let's look now at verses 2 and 3. John writes this, By this you know the Spirit of God... Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. You may remember from the first sermon on First John that in John's day there were a number of teachers, they were called Gnostics, who were very significantly influencing the church. 
They built their theology off of Plato's philosophy. And what they taught was that spiritual existence was good, but that all material existence, including bodies like ours, were inherently evil and completely evil. And so the idea for them was to escape material reality and get somehow into a spiritual reality. Because of this philosophy that they had, they taught that Jesus could not have been an actual person. Because they believed that He was ultimately holy, utterly holy, but they also believed that flesh was utterly evil, so there's no way for an utterly holy God to take on utterly evil flesh. Therefore, Jesus must have only seemed to be a human being. But He was not actually a human being. This was the kind of teaching that was influencing John's church. And you have to understand that these people would have been very prone to believe it because they were Greeks. And from the time they were this high, they were being taught this fundamental picture of reality. This was not a foreign concept to them. This was very much like hand and glove to them. It would have been easy to deceive people in that time to believe in that direction. And so John is writing to say, Time out. Whoever's teaching you that Jesus did not become a man is not from God. And here's why. If, if the Holy God did not actually take on human flesh and die as a fleshly human being on the cross, nobody's sins are forgiven. None. The atonement on the cross requires that God and man meet in the person of Jesus Christ. If you destroy either side of that, you destroy Christianity. You destroy the Gospel. So this was not a small nitpicking thing John was pulling up here. He's saying, listen, Satan hates Jesus. So what he wants you to believe is that Jesus was not a man and could never have been a man. Why? Because he doesn't want your sins to be forgiven. So if he can sway you away from the forgiveness of sins that's found in Jesus Christ alone, then he'll take you with him to hell. So don't believe that. When somebody rises to teach that Jesus was not a man, they're speaking from a demonic spirit. That's what John is saying. Anyone who rises to say, no, Jesus Christ was actually a man and actually took on flesh, and God looked at the material universe that He created and said, it is good. Anyone who teaches like that, that person is from God because they're speaking truth about Jesus Christ. So the test that John gives here was a particular test given to a particular church that was facing a particular false teaching at that time. This is not necessarily the singular test to give to every teacher throughout all of church history, in, in a sense. Because I don't know of anybody who's teaching like this today. And plus, another thing is, there are other ways to obscure the doctrines about Christ, right? I know of people who will gladly accept that He was God and man in the flesh, and that they totally blow apart the true teaching about Jesus Christ in other ways. So we should not get the idea here that John is giving us one test for all times. He's trying to combat particular teachers. But here's one thing we can learn. The, the issue of the incarnation of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to Christianity. And we must protect it to our death. And I mean that. There are people who have stood for truth throughout history who have literally been killed for standing. I'm telling you, this is one of those doctrines. I would die to argue for this doctrine. I'm not kidding about that. Jesus Christ did become a physical human being. He did die on the cross as the fully God, fully man being. And only through that way are sins forgiven. Through belief in Him. 
If that is ever compromised in any way, we must know in our minds a demon is talking, and we must reject in our minds whatever that person is saying to us. So again, the particular of what John is saying here was, I think, given to a particular people at a particular time. However, we can learn a lesson. The incarnation matters big time. Really, really big time. And so, we have to test people about this. John says that if a teacher fails that test, that person is functioning under the spirit of the Antichrist. That is a strong pronouncement, beloved. That is a very strong pronouncement. I think some of the strength of that might be a little bit lost on us because you have to understand that the church he's writing to actually knew the teachers that he was talking about. These teachers had been inside of their church. They had had meals with them. They walked with them. They talked with them. They played with them. They shared the gospel at one time with them. And these people, just imagine somebody in this church rising up, leaving the church, and then spending their life undermining every teaching of this church. That's what was happening here. These were real human beings that these people were even emotionally connected with. And John is saying, beloved, they are antichrists. Wow, that's strong. We're so reluctant in our day to call a spade a spade. John, in love, was not afraid to speak the truth. These people were not just off in their teachings. They're being influenced by demons. They're antichrists. I think in our day... We have to be careful about making pronouncements about things like this. Steve, you and I have had some chats about this and how to handle coming out publicly uh, against this or that teacher or for this or that teacher. And we do. We have to proceed with great caution simply because no elder at this church is an apostle. huh? I mean, none of us has the kind of authority that John had. And so I want to be very careful to sort of make eternal pronouncements about a person. That is, that's a dangerous thing to do. At the same time though, I think that as a body, not just one elder, but a, a, a community of elders in the context of a body, I think we need to be willing to discern the true spirit of a teacher and call a spade a spade. We cannot let the American spirit of toleration keep us from speaking the truth because remember, what's really happening here is demons are fighting against the Spirit of God over the truth about Jesus Christ. There are demonic spirits attempting to influence our minds right this moment. They may not be getting in here through the airwaves, but as soon as we leave this church, it's all going to be there. It's going to be there. We need to learn to see things in those terms and not be afraid to speak the truth. Now, I believe that John's heart was always for the teachers themselves. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. I think he wanted these teachers to come to a knowledge of the truth. He didn't want them to go to hell, and I don't want them to go to hell. There are particular names coming to my mind right now that I think are absolute heretics and functioning under the influence of antichrists, but I want them to come to heaven. I am not against the teacher himself or herself. I'm against the spirits who are already eternally damned, have no hope, and therefore are destined for hell. I am against them. And we need to learn together to be against them. Discern the spirits and don't be afraid to speak the truth while also trying to woo the teachers themselves back into the fold. John Piper has influenced me so much in this way because here's a man that's not afraid to speak truth about theology. Right? I mean, I've seen him come out publicly in some ways that I just shake my head and say, wow, that was, that was courageous. 
that he would do that publicly. But I know him privately too. I've seen him shed tears for the teachers themselves to come back to Christ. I've seen him. I've been in meetings with some particular teachers that I have in mind right now that I think are straying and leading others completely astray and away from Jesus. I've seen him face to face plead with them, come back, come back, come into the fold. What a, what a beautiful picture of a man who will stand for truth and also try to persuade the person toward Christ. That's the spirit we ought to have. We do need to discern truth and error, but we must always be for everyone to come to Christ. Now we know that God is sovereign over all that stuff, but until the day we die, we've got to fight for every soul to be loosed from Satan and freed to worship this God that we know. Oh, how I pray that that kind of spirit will take hold of this church. With all this in mind, let's look just quickly at verses 4-6. to six. I'm going to be very quick about this. John now, what I think he's doing now is pronouncing his judgment about how he thinks about three different groups. He says, little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them, that is the teachers. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, whoever is not from God doesn't listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of elders. So first of all, John turns his attention to his readers and notice again he calls them little children. I told you a few weeks ago, that is the single most affectionate term in the Greek language. He feels fatherly toward these people and he loves them. And his assessment of them is that they are truly from God. Now here's a guy not afraid to speak the truth. If he felt that they were being deceived, he would have said it. But he did not. He said, you are from God, and why? You have overcome the teachers, and, and why? Because the Spirit of the great God is living in you, and that Spirit is greater than any false spirit outside of you that's trying to deceive you. What good news that is. You know what that implies to me? That implies to me that the greatest defense against false teaching is my personal connection to Jesus Christ Himself. I was remembering this morning, just as I was back up here praying, it came back to me just like a flood. I remember when I first got saved, I, I, was, I was on the streets, I got a Bible, I read First John, I get to chapter 3, I read this, these words that if I'm not walking in the ways of God, I'm a child of the devil. I believe it, I just know it's true. I give my life to Christ. And I got a job as a security guard in this posh country club. And so the next day and the next day and the next day, and it's a graveyard job, by the way, and I got nothing to do but sit there and read my Bible all night long and talk to my fellow security guard here, who, by the way, happens to be a Jehovah's Witness. But I didn't know that at the time. I didn't know what that meant at the time. This guy spent hour after hour after hour after hour after hour trying to influence me to believe what he believes about Jesus. And at one point... To try to persuade me, he even offered to co-sign on a car for me. Which kind of like came out of left field to me. And I was like, pretty instantly, like, no, I don't think, I don't think so. Something in my spirit felt like, that's not right. I was, I was like a four or five, six day old Christian, friends. I knew nothing. I'd never touched the Bible in my life before the day that I opened it up and got saved. I didn't know anything. And yet the Spirit of God in me said, watch out for this one. This one's a deceiver. Oh, that's such good news to me. Because that means that every single sheep in the fold of Jesus Christ, no matter how naive we might be at times, are protected by the shepherd living inside of us. Isn't that great? 
This is why we don't need a spirit of paranoia in us. We need to test, but we do not need to be paranoid. Because greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. And if you truly love Jesus Christ as He is, He will protect you. He will lead you in the way that you should go. He'll bring you home all the way to that vision that I saw in my mind this morning as we were worshiping, which I, I can, I have some confidence in the vision I saw this morning because it all pops off the pages of Revelation. Everything I saw in my mind as we were worshiping is right there on the pages of Revelation. There will be a day when the children of God surround Him by the hundreds of millions and worship this great and glorious and merciful God who has saved us. And if He's inside of us, He's going to protect us from our enemies. Oh, that is so encouraging and relaxing to me. Praise God for that. With that in mind, John turns to the false teachers then and says of them just another quick thing. Listen, the reason their ministries are prospering is because they're speaking the language of the world and the world likes the language of the world. There are churches this day all around the earth that are there and ministries that are exploding with growth. Some of them, the reason is because they're from the world and they're speaking the world's language and it's easy to grow ministries when you tickle itching ears, isn't it? Beloved, if we just wanted to grow a church, this place, we could have to move out of this place in a matter of months. It's actually not hard to grow a church. You just give people what they want and they will come. They will. If you preach the real gospel, they may come, they may not come. That's God's business. That is not our business. This church may explode with growth one day. I don't know. It may stay small for many years to come. To be honest with you, I don't care. This is God's church. It does not belong to us. Those things are not our business. But what I do know is that some ministries are greatly prospering because they're speaking of the world, from the world, to the world, and the world likes that. Remember what Jesus said though in Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Here's his next words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. So if you think about that, Jesus is talking about those who claim to be Christians. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. They take on the cloak of the church. They'll open a Bible in your presence. They'll claim to be speaking for Christ, but they're wolves. They're ravenous wolves. And the test Jesus gives is you'll know them by their fruit. Just pay attention to their fruit over time and you will know them. The reason some ministries are growing is because the truth of the matter is that they're wolves and they're speaking from the world. So we need not to be discouraged. Final group John addresses, I think, is the apostles. You look there in verse 7. You see where he says, we are from God. Some people think that John means himself and his readers, but most commentators think, and I agree, that the we here means the apostles. I think John is, is uh, contrasting the teaching of the false teachers with the true teaching of the apostles, and he's saying we are from God. The message we have brought to you about Jesus Christ is from God. We walked with Him. We talked with Him. We touched Him. We did life with Him. We know who He is. We have written by the Holy Spirit, not by our own flesh, and the things that we're teaching are true. Here's the reason that some people listen to us. They are from God. The people who have been chosen by God will listen to truth. The people who have not been chosen by God will not listen to truth. You can see this. When two people walk into a room, they begin to hear a true teacher. 
The person who's from God is just sort of strangely attracted to it. They're interested. They're like, oh, what's the person saying? I want to hear. I want to, I want to know more about Christ. This person over here, that's boring. That's silly. That's, that's stupid. Why would anybody give themselves to that? Those people are weak. Those people are, you know, fill in the blank. The, re- the reason two people react to the same thing so differently is because one has got the Spirit of God in them and the other does not. We need to learn to discern that and to think in those terms and not always be discouraged when we see other ministries exploding around us who may or may not be from God. So with all of this in mind, John simply concludes there at the end of verse 6, you'll see where he says, By these things we can know the Spirit of truth and the Spirit of error. I find comfort in that too, simply in the fact that these things can be discerned. God is not playing hide-and-go-seek with us. He has commanded us to discern spirits, and He's made it possible to do so as a body. And so, let's do that. And I want to conclude just very quickly with five suggestions for how we can discern the spirits. I know that almost everyone listening to me right now already knows these things. I'm not trying to insult your spiritual intelligence or speak down to you in any way at all. I think of Peter when he said to his readers, he said, I'm not afraid to stir up in you things that you already know. I'm not afraid to repeat to you things you've already been taught. And that's kind of the spirit that I'm bringing now. I just want to stir up in all of us, including me, things that we already know. So here's how we can go about the process of discerning the spirits. First of all, we have to know the Word of God and the God of the Word. Backwards and forwards. It's not for nothing that we make such a big deal about the Bible at this church. It's not for nothing that we press year after year on memorizing the Bible, reading through the Bible, preaching from the Bible, teaching from the Bible, praying in the Bible, being a people of the Word. It's not for nothing. And the, and the, the something is that God has revealed His very self through the Bible. We're not just trying to discern logical ideas, although there's tons of logical ideas in there. Mainly what we're trying to, to discern is God Himself. We want to know the God of the Word and not just the Word of God. But the way we know the God of the Word is through the Word of God. So we must be a people who saturate our brains in the Word. Now I know that some of you who have been walking with Christ for a long time, it gets kind of uh, dull and dreary and difficult to pay attention when you read through the Bible year after year after year after year. It's, it's sometimes difficult to find ways to make it fresh and living for you. But just pray and ask your Father. He'll give you ideas. There's many ways to make the Bible live in your life. But the thing we need is to cling to the God of the Word. It's Him that we want. And so we have to know His Word. I, I tell you, if you would do nothing in your life but read the Bible and read the Bible and read the Bible and ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom and discernment, you could become an amazing discerner of spirits. You may never go to college or seminary. You may never get a theological degree. And you may be wiser than the people who teach in schools like that because you know the Word of God. Think about John and Peter and James when they stood before the Sanhedrin and they were arguing for Jesus. And the powers that be in that day said, Who are you people? And where did you get all this knowledge? None of you went to school. Well, they had the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of them. And we can have that too. Second thing, as I said earlier, we need to learn to live in community with maturing believers. Discerning the spirits is a body issue. It's not simply an individualistic issue. And so over time, we need to learn to lean on each other. As I said, even right in this little body, there are a number of people who excel at the gift of discernment. Get to know them. Talk to them. Ask them their opinion. I have several degrees 
in theology. I'm earning another one even now. And I'm telling you, I lean on the people I have in my mind right now in this church. I lean on them. Because I don't care how many degrees a person gets. I was designed to need the body too. And every degree I get is for the good of the body. It's not for the exaltation of me. And so even a teacher like me, even a, a guy with a great gifting like a John Piper or an R.C. Sproul or C.J. Mahaney or whomever, these people need the body. We were designed to be a body. So let's lean on each other. Let's do that. Number three, besides taking advantage of local Christian community, I think we need to take advantage of the broader community and read resources. There's so many books and websites and stuff like that available to us today. Take advantage of it. A couple that are coming to my mind right now is Ligonier Ministries, DesiringGod.org, uh, Monergism.com. Uh, what else? Lee Strobel's website is amazing for apologetics kind of stuff. Hank Hennegraff, Equip.org. He's amazing at his ability to discern truth and falsehood in teachers. Take advantage of these things. There's people that have been gifted tremendously by the Holy Spirit to give all of us clarity and sight. So take advantage of them is all I'm saying. See yourself as part of a very broad community and take advantage of what God has given to us in that broader community. Number four, since all of our time is limited, even those of us who work full-time in the church, I would tell you to, to test the teachers that are closest to you and leave others till another time. You only have so much time, right? You probably could not test all the 35 teachers that I listed to you earlier. Probably, am I right? Would you have time to do that this week? <laughs> You just don't have time. So start with those who are closest to you. Start thinking about who are you allowing to influence you through the radio, through internet, through church services like this. Who are you allowing to have a voice in your life and are you testing them? Are you testing them? Do it in community and the Lord will help you. And then finally, I just want to close my last words to the church before I go on a couple weeks of vacation. Wonderful place for me to end is that our hope is Christ in us, the hope of of glory. He who began a good work in us will complete it all the way to the day of Christ Jesus. So the main strategy for discerning the spirit of truth and error, for discerning the spirit of God and the spirit of demons, is to cling to Jesus Christ Himself. He, in fact, is our hope. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm seeing a, another picture of you. As soon as I close my eyes, it just lighted on my soul coming from Revelation chapter 1, where you stood there so tall and strong with your gray, wise, long hair running off of your head and your eyes blazing like the sun and a sword that is the Word of God protruding from your mouth with which to judge the nations. And how I pray that this Christ who is standing with the stars of the church in His hands, how I pray that you would protect us and keep us, how I pray that you would drive the devils away from us, how I pray that You would escort us into Your kingdom and a fullness of Your kingdom for the glory of Your name. Oh, Father, we simply want the prayer to come true in our lifetime. Let Your kingdom come. Let Your will be done on earth, in this church, in our homes, even as it is in heaven. We love You, Jesus, and we trust You, the Lord of the church, for these things. Amen.